Open your Bibles with me this morning to Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah chapter 12, near the end of the Old Testament, near the end of the book of Zechariah. You should have your directions down already at this point. If you don't have a Bible, we have some Bibles on the back table that you can use to follow along. We're approaching the finish line to what has turned into, so far, a 15-week study. This is our 15th week in this Old Testament prophecy, a prophecy that began with crazy visions and now is concluding with confusing oracles. So last week, we sought to sift through some of that confusion, and we learned that Zechariah was speaking of an imminent future that historically took place both in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, as well as those of you who were here last week or who listened last week, as well as in the fall of the city of Jerusalem in AD 70, that definitive divorcing of Yahweh and his people. Well, this week, as we jump back in to this prophecy, the prophet keeps our vision far-reaching, particularly for the, the ancient people to whom this was once spoken. He continues to set their gaze pretty far out there, stretching beyond the circumstances of their day and focusing their hearts, focusing his promises on the first and the second coming of the Messiah. You're going to find this morning as we work our way through chapter 12 that these are familiar themes that we have seen in this book. Themes that the Lord seems to continue to repeat from a variety of different angles to a discouraged and, I assume, a forgetful people. One of the key phrases before I read our passage this morning that you'll hear is this phrase, on that day. You'll hear this again and again from the Lord through the prophet Zechariah. On that day. Another phrase associated with those three words in the Old Testament is when the prophets speak of the day of the Lord. But when is that day? It's used in different ways, the day of the Lord, or on that day. It's used in different ways in the Old Testament. Sometimes it's speaking of an imminent conquest. Sometimes it's speaking of a little further out. Joel speaks of the day of the Lord. He speaks of the coming of the Spirit in power. But the New Testament writers speak of the day of the Lord in terms of the end. The end of all time. I humbly submit to you this morning that I think the Holy Spirit gives us this message in Zechariah 12, wanting us to be encouraged that this day of the Lord that He speaks of has both come and is still to come. You've heard me talk like that before. In other words, it is here already and there is more yet to come. There is a not yet to come. And so that's what we'll find this morning as we work our way through Zechariah 12. If you would, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Zechariah chapter 12. I'm going to read the entirety of the chapter and then sneak into chapter 13 verse 1 as well. Listen as I read. This is God's Word. The oracle of the Word of the Lord concerning Israel. 
Thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples, and all who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness." Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem." And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not suppress that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the morning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning for Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself, and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself, and their wives by themselves. On that day, There shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Going to be seated. I want to begin this morning by reading some brief reports, current reports from the organization Open Doors, if you're familiar with that. 5,621 Christians were killed for their faith last year. 90% of these deaths were from the nation of Nigeria. Boko Haram and other militants have conducted devastating raids on Christian communities. And the government denies that this is religious persecution, so violations of Christians' rights have been carried out without impunity. In China, the use of digital surveillance technology is spreading, adding to persecution and intimidation of Christians. As digital tools become more sophisticated, so does the Chinese government. Beijing has employed censorship, disinformation, and unblinking surveillance to ratchet up control of religious groups. North Korea 
is experiencing its highest levels of persecution with an increase in arrests of Christians and house churches discovered and closed under the new anti-reactionary thought law. And I could go on and on and on with reports from around the world. This organization, Open Doors, actually ranks nations in regards to their persecution of brothers and sisters in the Lord. It's one of the reasons why I like to continually put before us the persecuted church and pray for the persecuted church because we so often lose sight of them. These are reports that put what we experience at home here in our culture, whatever legislation that we're facing, whatever ungodly, unjust legislation we're facing, or whatever cultural tides are washing over our schools, our workplaces, puts things into perspective. I bring up all this stuff done before just to remind us that the church of Jesus Christ is increasingly under attack. In subtle ways in our lives, in more blatant ways in the lives of so many believers around the world. This is not new. And it will continue until all things are made new. But as Yahweh encouraged His people long ago with these words in Zechariah 12, so I think, I hope, I pray that we are encouraged once again as we unpack some of what the prophet says to his people and seek to apply it in our own circumstances, in our own lives. I pray that we would not only be encouraged, but that we would be emboldened with the promises that are here. So two promises for us to make sense of this chapter and kind of hang our thoughts on this morning, as I always do. Two promises, and the first one is this. The world's campaign against the church is fruitless. What a great statement. The world's campaign against the church is fruitless. This passage that I just read to you, it almost has, for those of you who know and love the Scriptures, it almost has a, a Psalm 2 vibe to it, right? Psalm 2, uh, is a psalm we looked at last year where the psalmist says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? What does the Lord do? He, he laughs because He has set His King in Zion. Before we dig into this passage, let's just get this out of the way. I don't want you to listen to this passage. I don't want you to hear its many references to the city of Jerusalem and hear its many references to the house of David and to the people of Judah and disassociate yourself from who he's speaking to and what he's speaking about. In many ways, verse 9, if you have your Bibles open, it's a summary of the first half of this passage. Verse 9, let me read it to you. On that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. But as we read this as New Covenant people on this side of the coming of the Messiah, Jerusalem here is not just some ancient Israeli or modern Israeli city. It is that. But in the Lord's 
purview. Jerusalem is the people of God. Jerusalem, we might say, is the church. So the world's campaign against Jerusalem is a campaign against Yahweh, is a campaign against His people, it's a campaign against the church, and it ultimately is fruitless. And the Lord backs this up, proves it by first reminding us this morning of who He is. Now we could kind of sum up these first several verses under two pictures. Two pictures that kind of have echoes a bit of creation, that wonderful story that was so pivotal in the life of God's people, of course, in the life of humanity, and then the exodus. First of all, verse 2, what does the Lord say? He says, He is Creator. This overarching declaration that Yahweh makes in this prophecy separates himself from any localized God and again establishes himself as the one true God over all. The universe came into being at his command. Life came into humanity by the breath of his mouth. Right? This is the language of the beginning here in verse 2. This is the language of order coming out of chaos. There are echoes of Genesis 1, as I said, and and Genesis 2. And this is not the God of deism. This is not a God who created the world and wound it up and let it be. No, this is a God who has stayed involved, who upholds and sustains the world by the word of His power. And it's as if He's reminding that just as He created so can He and will He recreate. And that recreation will begin as He fights for His people, which is the other heading that we can kind of group these verses and these images in. Right Here's the image of a warrior. We saw that image in one of the visions that we looked at way back in chapter 6. The Lord reminded His people that He will fight for them. Against the surrounding enemies, against the surrounding peoples. And how will He fight for them? Well, here we really get some images. First, there's this image of a cup. Right? Verse 2, Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering. Now, don't think like a teacup. This is like literally like a bowl, like, like a basin. And in the Old Testament, the cup was often used as a metaphor for God's wrath. It's this image of, of drinking down an intoxicating liquor that leaves one reeling and ultimately leads to destruction. And so the picture here is of Jerusalem, of God's people, and the enemies are surrounding them, and they're just waiting, they're just anxious to gulp down God's people. And instead, they drink and they find themselves staggering and stumbling at His judgment. I will make Jerusalem a cup of staggering. And then he says, he brings up this imagery of a stone. What do you think of when you think of a, of a heavy stone? You think of something solid, right? You think of something immovable. You try and move it and you end up pulling your back out. You end up gashing your hands up. 
And the Lord says, I will make my people not only a cup of staggering, but a stone, immovable. And then there's this language in the prophecy of an attack on horses. Horses were, of course, war animals. We could look to a number of places in Israel's history where God fought for his people by attacking the armies, the chariots, the horses of his enemies. And this bit about horses here in Zechariah chapter 12, it's, it's reminiscent of this covenantal language that we find in, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 28, where Yahweh says that one of the curses for disobedience, he says this, the Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind. And here in Zechariah 12, that supernatural weapon is wielded against his enemies, keeping his people safe. But it's not all defense, is it? The last image is a powerful image of offense in verse 6. On that day I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding people. Does a story come to mind when you think about a blazing pot igniting all that's around it? Maybe Judges chapter 15. The story of Samson's defeat of the Philistines. Crazy story where he puts torches on the tails of 300 foxes and releases them into the fields of grain. And of course, it wreaks havoc. What are the points of all these images that Zechariah gives to his people? The point is that Yahweh will defend his people from their enemies and will ultimately rout their enemies. The world's campaign against his people is fruitless. So how do we bring this home to us and to our hearts this morning? Well, let me suggest... Two ways, two pointed applications of this imagery and this prophecy. Number one, get on the right side of history. Get on the right side of history. What I mean by that is opposing God opposing his church, opposing his message, you don't stand a chance, right? Kings have been born. They have flexed their power and now they're dead. Kingdoms have risen and fallen and now they're relegated to the history books. But the church remains. Despite countless efforts to snuff her out, the church remains and the gospel marches on. Why? Because the Lord is behind this. Because we are the Lord's. The end of verse 5. Because they have strength through the Lord of hosts. And so the pivotal line in the sand question for all of us this morning is what kingdom are you living for? Whose kingdom are you living for? This is a reminder to get on the right side of history. Well, that's a question that primarily is meant to pierce the hearts of unbelievers, of those who have not yet bowed the knee 
to King Jesus and acknowledged who he is. But let me take things a step further because we could actually take that question for us in this room as well. Because I know many of you, most of you, all of you know and love the Lord Jesus already. So let me say this. Let me remind us of this. That our sin, all of our sin, is an assault on His kingdom. We've been reading that Paul Tripp book in the Discipleship Hour and another book he writes this. He says, It is so hard for us to make the truly important things functionally important to us. I'll read it again. That's everyday life right there. That's why Chris reminded us this morning to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. It is so hard for us to make the truly important things functionally important to us. And so as a result, we spend our lives, at least some of our lives, chasing after lesser things. We treat our lives as if they're about our little worlds. We forget about God's redemptive purposes. We forget about His plans for the world. And we focus on us, on just having a comfortable, self-focused life. And in doing so, we grieve the heart of God. Which is why He gives us passages like this. Just to remind us what He's doing. Just to remind us that He is for us. Just to prod us again to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness that everything else would fall into place. So number one, get on the right side of history. And number two, fight your battles with courage. Fight your battles with courage. I don't want to over-spiritualize this passage, but there is a spiritual aspect here. Ephesians chapter 6, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. Those spiritual forces that Paul says in Colossians 2, Christ came and has disarmed. And so this is a passage of encouragement not only about their ultimate end, but about God's provision, God's strength as we arm ourselves as the church with the weapons of His warfare. And so fight your battles with courage, the Lord reminds us. John Calvin says this in his Institutes, We see how Satan rises up great forces. We see how the whole world conspires against the church to prevent the increase or progress of the kingdom of Christ so that we are ready to faint and to become wholly dejected. Let us remember, however boldly may multiplied adversaries resist Christ in the work of building a spiritual temple to God the Father, yet all their efforts will be in vain. And remember, finally, this is not merely a defensive posture, is it? No, as the blazing pot of God's people ignites the world around them, so we are called to burn brightly, 
to spread the word like fire, the message that has ignited our hearts and our lives with purpose. The image that came to mind is for Lord of the Ring fans, the vial that Galadriel gave to Frodo that contains the light of the star, right? And he pulls the light out in the midst of the darkness and it has the power to make the darkness cower. This passage is a reminder that we need not tremble before the world. We need not hide when we're opposed. Instead, we wield that blazing glory, that treasure entrusted to jars of clay. Paul says in Romans 1 that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Jesus said to Peter in Matthew 16, I will build my church. And what? The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Brothers and sisters, though the nations rage, the church immovable remains and it will continue to remain and even advance and burn brighter still until that day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And so let this word from the Lord remind you to take heart, to be of good courage, to be bold. The world's campaign against the church is fruitless. Well, as we close the passage, let's move as our text directs us to from conquered peoples to conquered hearts, which in one sense is one and the same, right? The second truth I want us to meditate on is this. Not only is the world's campaign against the church fruitless, but God's saving of his people is certain. You see, in conjunction with the physical salvation that God will achieve for his people, verses 10 through the end gives us this beautiful picture of the spiritual salvation that, again, he will achieve for his people. This is the gospel according to Zechariah. Verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace. The pouring out of a spirit. The spirit of grace. Many of the prophets spoke like this. Isaiah 44, I will pour water on the thirsty land, streams on the dry land. My spirit upon your offspring. Ezekiel 39, and I will not hide my face anymore from them when I pour out my spirit on the house of David. It all begins here. The Apostle John testified that it is the Spirit who brings about life. It is He, Paul says to the church at Corinth, that has shown light in our hearts to give us the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus. And so any Declaration of the gospel begins with God's movement, with God's initiative, with God's sovereign power and grace that then results in what? In pleas for mercy and mourning. A godly sorrow that is at the heart of repentance. Zechariah compares the depth of the mourning that God's people will experience to that of losing a child kind of mourning that Israel was well aware of. There's this allusion here to Hadad Ramon. You can read about that in Second Chronicles chapter 35. 
what's contained there is the death of King Josiah. Good King Josiah. A death that rocked the nation of Israel for many, 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 many years. And he says, the morning that's to come will be greater than that morning that you experienced. What's the catalyst for the morning? Verse 10, it's the pierced one. The pierced one. Now this would have been incredibly confusing for an ancient Jew to hear. Right? Because it's clear that God is the one speaking here. They look on me, he says, him whom they have pierced. And they ask, and we ask, how could God, the one who stretched out the heavens, be pierced? Well, I suppose we could think metaphorically about it, right? Like you talk about someone stabbing you in the back. Is that what the prophet is speaking of here? That's not how the word is used in the Old Testament. No, the word in the Old Testament is consistently used again and again, not in a figurative sense, but in a literal sense of being run through by a sword. Numbers 25, 8, Judges 9, 54, 1 Samuel 31, 4. And of course, as we sit here this morning, that's how we've got to understand it. This is how the Apostle John understood it. In John 19, he records this. One of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. They will look on Him whom they have pierced. And that's the point. That's the beauty of the story of redemption that God has been weaving through all of these Old Testament stories hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus came. That's the point. That's the application today in all of our lives is to look upon the pierced one, to abide in the Son, to rejoice in Jesus, to look upon the atoning sacrifice of Jesus and mourn and repent, and find forgiveness, and find life. Church of Jesus, only then will you be on the right side of history. Only there will you find a king worth following, and a kingdom worth being a part of. And only in Him will the chaos of the world not overwhelm you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this prophecy, for the life of your servant, for the word from his mouth inspired by the Holy Spirit. And we thank you for how it points so clearly to you, Lord Jesus, the culmination of all God's promises. As we go from this place, may we go with a bounce in our step reminded the world's campaign against you, against us, against your church is fruitless. And reminding us to abide in your Son, to look upon the pierced one that we might find life. O Holy Spirit, take this word 
I pray, planted deep in our hearts for the glory of your name, for the good of your people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.